Welcome to this week's episode of Hey, I think we're good here. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jackson Metakekia. And I'm Matt West. And we're here getting to know the sport of volleyball through the life experiences our guests have to share with us. Come take a listen. Today's episode stars current LMU head sand volleyball coach, John Mayer. John is also the host of the most listened to volleyball podcast, Coach Your Brains Out. This podcast can be broken up into two segments. In the first, we discuss John's humble upbringings coming from a house of two teachers, his time in the gnarly environment at Pierce College, how it prepared him for the culture at Pepperdine, kicking a hole through his ceiling from nightmares in the Long Beach Pyramid, losing in the Final Four, then coming back to win a natty in 2005, and his professional AVP and FIVB career. In the second segment, that starts at about 58 minutes in, we discuss the ecological dynamic philosophy in coaching. John tells us how he is implementing this in his practices and how it's becoming part of his team's culture at LMU. A very, very brief synopsis of the ideology would be creating an environment with a problem and the athletes need to find out the solution. Uh, The talk is great. Uh, It's very relevant not only to the sport, but our lives outside of it as well. Check it out. Johnny, what's happening? Oh, not much. Some of you guys. So uh, living the dream over here in Reno. <laughs> I like the whiteboard. <clears throat> Thanks. It's are you in the office? Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. I like to break my days off a little bit, you know, not just be in the house all day. I thought maybe that was your room. You're just constantly working. <laughs> you know, I sleep here sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, John, how you been? Welcome to the podcast, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. It's awesome you guys are doing it. Yeah, we're stoked to have you on, man. Jackson has been, I think, since the beginning, he's like, we got to get Johnny Mayer on. We got to get <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully I don't let you down. You got to keep the bar low with me. <laughs> Classic. Um, well, just give us an update on LMU Beach right now and how you guys are doing. Uh. Yeah, we just went through a little preseason, and uh, we, you know, it's all different. We're uh, girls are wearing masks, and we weren't doing high fives, and we we're doing small groups. Uh, you know, we didn't get to compete. Normally in the fall, our preseason, we get to compete a couple times, um, and we were limited on campus. Normally, we go down to the beach, and we have a bunch of courts, and we just had one court. We have this one like rec court on campus that we got to use. So we had um, we'd run like three, three, four practices a day. We're just, as coaches, we were out there for six hours or more. Um, but it was nice. The girls, you know, small groups, and it was me and Betsy and uh, my brother uh, coaching. There's three coaches, four players a lot. So I think uh, hopefully we helped them get better. But, yeah, I think it, it was fun to be out there. You know, it's like one of those things, normal times you'd complain about all of it, and now you're just stoked to be, uh, you know, doing what you love. Yeah, I feel you on that. It's just any time in the gym is a good time. <laughs> yeah. What was it like for you guys, Jackson? Uh, we just got done with a six-week training block. Um, you know, our season obviously got canceled. And then uh, our university set it up where each sport, each fall sport, would get a six-week training block. 
and that's where we create a kind of mini bubble and get tested every week. We were able to go full six on six volleyball, which was, nice. I, didn't, I didn't expect it, but it was pretty cool. Um, and yeah, it was, it was tough because six weeks is a long time not to compete against anyone else except your own team. But yeah, I thought the girls did a really good job. Yeah. What, what like about for, that's good. What about for you, Matt? Yeah, we're full speed. And uh, I think we're, I think we started uh, the earliest in international ball. We must have started the earliest out of any other league because we're already 16 matches in. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then it's just dependent. Well, originally, if one player tested positive, then the whole team's quarantining. Yeah. And now, because so many teams have had to postpone matches, that it just feels like it's going to be an endless cycle of when are we ever going to finish the season. Now, if one guy tests positive, it's up to four people. If they test positive, then they just stay home and everybody else travels. Okay. They test negative. Have you guys had any, any on your team? Yeah, we've had three outbreaks this season, hmm. for sure. But we've been pretty fortunate. Um, and you're in Germany, is that right? I'm in Turkey. In Turkey. Yeah, but we've been pretty fortunate thus far that it it feels like it always comes at the right time when we're just gassed and like there's mm-hmm. just not a lot more we can give. And then it's like, oh, we tested positive. It's like, oh yeah, we're liberated for two weeks. <laughs> You're the first team that's ever celebrated for testing positive for a deadly virus. <laughs> I think most teams at this point, because we're playing, we're playing twice a week, once at home, once on the road. But our road matches are at least eight hours driving from where we are. Wow. So we're spending like upwards of twenty hours of travel. So in, you know, in a month, you're spending eighty hours of travel. Plus, you're playing eight matches. So when somebody tests positive, you're like freedom. Yeah. Wow. And do you guys normally would fly for those or is that you guys uh, normally would drive? I think so. I think for the most part, we would fly to like the really far places in the bigger cities, the Istanbul's and like Izmir. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think they drive everywhere else. But regardless, okay. it's still, traveling's never that easy. Yeah. yeah. And then right now with everything that's going on, like there's just so many restrictions of what you mm-hmm. can and can't do. And nobody really knows. It's yeah. Still, it's been almost a year and still nobody really has an answer to like what the right thing to do is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's hard to know. And, and then it's, no one knows how long it'll go. I think no one expected we'd still be, uh, I'm sure people did. I, I didn't expect we'd be so deep in it still. And, and, you know, the end's not even, I don't think that close in sight. Yeah. I remember thinking at the beginning of it, like, Oh yeah. By Memorial day or by the 4th yeah. of July, we'll be back out. And yeah. But, yeah. All right, well, let's get into it, Johnny. Um, kind of the first question we usually ask is just why volley and how'd you get into it? Um, why? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I, I love sports. I think that was probably the main thing. Just love competing and love playing games. And uh, I still like uh, try to find ways to play games however I can with even if it's with my seven-year-old daughter. Um, as a as a kid, yeah, I'd, you know all the normal basketball, baseball, and, you know, flag football. I wasn't tough enough to play tackle football, but would do all that. And then my parents, I think probably in the, um, I don't know what, the 84, 88 Olympics volleyball, I think got kind of a, got noticed, you know, Karch out there winning gold medals. And I think they saw it and they, they played some adult leagues. So 
started to just be kind of around it and knew it was a sport, but didn't play it a whole lot. And then I think the biggest thing that happened was um, in high school, you know, volleyball was really an afterthought for me. I'd, I'd do it, but I was all about basketball. Um, but Tom Black, who I think a lot of people know in volleyball community, um, coaches at Georgia and coached um, with the U.S. and he coaches the Canadian national team. You know, he comes to my high school and coaches the varsity team. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I got pretty lucky there. And I guess he, he ended up having a conversation with the, the varsity basketball coach. And the varsity basketball coach was kind of like – debating if he wanted me like I don't know if I want this like he's a senior and he probably won't play that much and Tom's like I'll take him and so I guess Tom basically ended my basketball career without me knowing it and um, he got me out there I played one year of varsity volleyball and um, he then said I should play in college and I didn't even know college volleyball was a thing so I uh, he had me go to a game at Pierce College which you know well Jackson and I went and I watched Bo Daniels and Lance Walker uh, we're at Pierce at that time, and I watched. Uh, I watched that. I was like, "Wow, this is a really, really high level." I don't know. Like, I don't know if I could do this, but I ended up, you know, I ended up going for it, and I went and I um, redshirted a year there at Pierce. And I think I still like even that first year at Pierce. I was like, "I'm a basketball player, and I play a little volleyball." Um, and then um, a guy named Yuri Lerner, who uh, another legend in volleyball, he uh, introduced me to beach and I started getting beach volleyball and I just, you know, slowly kind of fought my way into it. But I eventually, uh, I think at some point, um, decided I was a volleyball player. Yeah. And what, what years were you, did you go to Pierce? Uh, 2001, 2002? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, um, yeah, the 2000, 2001 season, the 2001, 2002 season. Yeah. Okay. And that was kind of when Pierce was, in its heyday and winning state championships at the junior college level. Um, yeah. What was it like going into that, to that gym for your first practice? Yeah, I kind of walked into, yeah, like a, a little dynasty. I mean, you know, it's men's volleyball and it's junior college, so I don't know. But it felt like a big deal uh, to, to me, for sure. I was, I was um, probably overwhelmed. Yeah, like I said, you know, players like Lance and Bo, they, they had left. And then that next year, um, there was this really stacked team. Um, LMU had dropped their men's program. And I think they had that, that just at that time. And some of those players had kind of scrambled to find a home. And Pierce ended up picking up uh, a guy named Matt Shubin, who ended up playing at UCLA. And then a guy named Dave Niffin, <clears throat> who you guys probably know, um, who's the coach at UCI. He came in. So he, uh, he was there. And uh, a guy named Raj Coates and just Clint Coe, a bunch of Division One players uh, who ended up playing a, at a high level. And so I was, I think I was the fourth string setter. And I think I was really worried about being cut that first semester. And uh, the culture there was this culture of like, um, um, probably fear, fear is a good word uh, of like intensity <laughs> of uh, just, uh, it, was, it was crazy. I mean, there's just crazy guys and this guy named Greg Vernovich who uh, ran the show. And there was a guy who, who, who was probably the third string setter. He put his, he like, before we had cleaned up all the nets, he had put his sandals on or like he, ha he wasn't helping clean up the nets. So uh, the coaches saw this and they gave him probably the, the gnarliest coach on one. And that guy never came back. So I went from fourth <laughs> string to third string uh, just cause, just cause I was helping clean up the nets a little bit. Uh, but that whole year, I mean, I just, I shagged balls and watched Dave Niffin and uh, uh, yeah, but, but yeah, the, there was just a, it was just guys who were super motivated who had run through a wall and 
Um, it was in, it was in pretty gnarly culture, and, and that team went undefeated. It was a really good team. Then the next year you played, what were some of the differences? Next year I played, um, actually Tom Black ended up coming. Uh, Greg Vernovich went to, uh, to Long Beach State, and Tom Black came in and coached. And uh, so I had that relationship with him. And we had that, the team the year before, it was like a bunch of like third-year guys at a, at a JC. Usually it's two years, but it was like a really veteran group. So it was, we're kind of a new group. Um, and yeah, a new coach and, um, but there's just like this, I think Pearson won two or three in a row at that point. So we had a lot of good players around. Um, yeah, I think that year I, I really was like, there wasn't a lot of competition to the setter position. I, I pretty much had the, the position and, um, we had a, a pretty good year. Yeah. We ended up winning state and, and I was planning on coming back for another year. Um, but, uh, got kind of lucky. There's a, a setter at Pepperdine who, was homesick and he kind of fell through and so Marv needed a backup setter and uh, Tom really pushed and got me into uh, got them to notice me so I ended up getting to go to Pepperdine the next year. You're on some pretty good teams. <laughs> yeah I always like to say I think I, I've played uh, I mean indoors I played you know in college for I had five seasons one redshirt year. Um, I think the probably the Closest I was with like, was like the fourth best player on the team. That was probably like maybe, maybe third one year. I was the third best. And then beach volleyball, I've had, I don't know, I had 30 partners. And I think maybe there was only one of them I was better than. So I think in my, my 35 teams, I've, I've always been, uh, um, you know, a role player or, or second or, th or third best on the team. Not that I thought that way, but looking back on it. I know Marv said you're the. He told me this. I don't know when I was at Pep. And you guys had your four-on-four -four tournament. And he goes, "Man, Johnny Mayer showed up today. Fastest guy I've ever seen." And he just walked away. <laughs> and I was like, so "I asked him the next day. I go, Marv, you serious or are you just you know?" And he goes, "No, by far, it's the fastest player I've ever played. Fastest player I've ever played." And I was like, "Yeah, that's pretty awesome. That's some yeah. players right there." Yeah, I guess, but Marvel always just brought in like six ten guys, so I don't know if like <laughs> I don't know if there's that much to to play against. Uh, but uh, that's yeah, even more admirable that you were playing with all these big dumb animals around you as an. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean that that lineup my senior year. Uh, I mean, everyone after the game thought I was like five six, but that lineup was big. I mean, it was. You know, they'd move Parfit from the middle to outside. So, he, I don't know, he's about 6'7", and, you know, Rooney's 6'9", and Andy Hine was 6'11", and, and Hulse is 6'8", and Winder was 6'8". And then, yeah, I was on the right, you know, maybe six feet. Um, but but it kind of worked out because I didn't have to do too much. You know, I'd just try to uh, pass okay and, and then cover Rooney. You know, not that he ever got blocked, but <laughs> I'd start running that way just in case. Were you pretty nervous you coming to the gym the first time as a wave? Oh, yeah. Big time. Um, that When I was at Pierce my second year, Bo and Lance were at, at Pepperdine. And, you know, it's kind of cool to see people who I had played at Pierce. And I'd go to all the games. So I was a big fan of that team. And I think Rooney was a freshman. And that team was really good. They they had beat Hawaii three, year, three times that year. And then they lost them in the finals. So they had kind of run the table in the MPSF. And. So I'd go watch them and, you know, Keenan was player of the year and uh, Bo was an All-American and, and Lance was good and, and Rooney was good and Fred Winters. So they were just, they're stacked. And, uh, and then I find myself, you know, uh, 
I don't know, four months later in the gym with those same guys I'd been watching. And I remember the first day I almost felt like I should go like ask Fred, Fred Winters for his autograph. And, you know, like Brad, like they're just like, they're stars to me. And I, I was definitely starstruck and um, yeah, I was intimidated and yeah, it was, it was challenging. It, and, and the first, there was no coaches even, you know, it's those like open gyms. So, uh, but yeah, eventually it kind of just figured out, you know, you figure out it's just, it's, you know, it's past that hit and you just play hard and figure it out. <laughs> Who's the first person that you guys competed against in the MPSF that just gave you guys the business, just took, took over the match and you felt like you couldn't do anything about it and you can't save Rooney cause he was on your team. <laughs> yeah. Luckily I, had, uh, yeah, I had, uh, Luckily, I had Rooney in my first year, you know, I had Rooney Winters and, and Keenan. So we had most of the good guys. Um, there's a guy named Kostas Theokaridis who played at Hawaii uh, from Greece. And I remember the same thing, like I'd watched him the year before. I remember watching him one time that he got set in all six rotations and got a kill. Like he sided out. And this was before the BIC was really big. But like, you know, he was that kind of guy who could just, and he, he wasn't that big. He's like six two, and he'd do it in different ways. Like he'd, he'd hammer a ball, he'd roll a ball, he'd do different, different stuff. So I think playing him um, again, just like that. I had watched him before I'd played against him. So there's a little like intimidation, uh, but yeah, he, he was hard to stop. I remember there's a guy named Paul Bocaj. I mean, I don't know if anybody remembers these people, but I remember these he was, people. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He, he was, uh, I think that was actually my, one of my first MPSF matches was against Stanford and, uh, they had t Kurt Topple and uh, Kevin Hansen and, and Bocage. And I remember seeing, you know, hitting lines. Bocage is in Firestone. And I mean, it looked like he could hit it back under the net. You know, he's just, he was super physical and a big arm. And, and, you know, it wasn't that long ago I was playing JC guys. And it's like, so I'm supposed to go out there and like play against that? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I remember, remember seeing some of those guys and just being like, this is a hot, you know, it's a high level, especially that first year. It's a big, big jump. It's got to be up to that point. Go ahead, Jackson. Sorry. Up to that point, uh, when you're at Pep, who are some players you try to emulate, like, or uh, take your game after? Yeah, I'd have to think back. Um, no one jumps out that much. I mean, I really liked, I remember watching Ty Trambley, uh, who was a, a good setter um, and just a little guy and scrappy and, would run around and kind of go for everything. I liked him a lot. Um, Tyler Hildebrand, I never felt like, he, like his hands were just so much better than mine. I didn't feel like I could set like him, but I just remember being impressed by him. Uh, he, was, he was a freshman that year. My first year, he was a freshman. Um, but yeah, I think mainly I was just trying to like keep my head above water and like not, not mess up. <laughs> I think I was looking around too much. Um, I, uh, James Cobb was on that team and was a good setter too. And, you know, I'd watch him, uh, but me, I think I felt the biggest pressure. Like I thought Bo was so good and I was so like in awe of him and kind of like feeling like, uh, I wasn't Bo and I wasn't near as good as him. And, and I was playing with a lot of those same hitters that he was setting. And I think I just felt the pressure of like, yeah, not being good enough or not, not doing enough. And, but, but Marv was so, you know, he's so good at building people up. Like he, I think he recognized it and, I remember him calling me in and just kind of like talking it through, like, uh, like, Hey, you're, you're, uh, you know, not, not that he was comparing me to Bo, but like, you're good at this, you're good at that. You know, you're good. At, you know, you don't need to worry about all that. So I was lucky to have him with me. I think a lot of coaches could have just probably, um, 
enhanced those negative thoughts I was having and, and made me feel worse about myself. Do you feel like there was a significant difference between the culture at Pierce and the culture at Pep, or was it pretty comparable because of all those guys that you'd played with before? You know, uh, Greg Vernovich Vern, he had played at Pepperdine, yeah. and he, I think he had played at Pep, and, you know, you always hear, like, of course, every, like, every person's going to be, it was so much harder when I was there, <laughs> and, you know, way back, back then, you know, and I hate those stories, like, I hate that, I was like, but, I, there's probably some truth to it. Like Marv was probably a little gnarlier and some of those guys like Chip McCaw and, and Vern and uh, some of that crew, I think they were just like, they had a screw loose, like they were crazy. Um, so I, I think Vern uh, probably tried to do what Marv did and, and I think he took it to his own level. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think that was the one nice thing where it was like going to Pepperdine, it didn't feel like, as, uh, like if you made one mistake, you're getting, you know, you're getting a, a five minute coach on one. Uh, but, but I think there was some of the similarities. Like we played a lot of volleyball. We competed a lot. Um, I don't know. You weren't going to get like overloaded with feedback and over overthinking too many technical things. Like they were going to let you play and let you be free. Um, but yeah, I think the cultures were, were not that far off. Like they weren't that far apart. So I think it was a nice transition. Yeah, that's great. I think that always feels like it's the hardest part, especially as a setter to identify yourself and like, cause you have to have your own personality, obviously. And like what you're good at, like you said with Marv, like he enhanced some of the things that you felt weren't like your strong suits. Yeah. But at the same time, like you're an assistant coach out there. So you really got to resonate well with your head coach. So it's like, man, if we don't understand each other, this is going to be a long three years or four years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Marv's great with it. And there was a good staff, uh, Rick McLaughlin was there and he's just such a positive guy. And like, he always, he, he worked with me and, and actually Chip worked with, with me as well. So the, I felt like I had a really good support system. Um, sometimes I think I had the coaches more on my side than, I mean, Rooney was hard to play with. Like th that guy, you know, he, he wants to win more than anybody. And I'm glad I had him w with me, but you know, he, if you didn't set him or if you didn't set him in the right spot, you know, you got to hear about it. Uh, and, uh, and Brad Keenan was the same way. You know, there's guys, they wanted the ball more and they wanted it in a different spot. So I think thankfully it wasn't, you know, players riding me and the whole coaching staff. And I think I had the coaching staff kind of on my side and the, and the players uh, were all over me. Looking back, because this is something that I've certainly battled with as a setter, is like sometimes you take too much grief. Yeah. And you're like the I'm sorry guy. And then once you yeah. become the I'm sorry guy, then like they're relentless yeah do you ever look back or if you work with setters now or when you were in the indoor game do you ever tell them like hey don't take so much shit like you gotta be <laughs> tougher here yeah yeah I mean Chip would tell me like once it's out of your hands it's not your problem like don't worry about it like stop uh yeah and I think you start to figure out like I mean on that team like Fred never complained so you just start to set that guy like all right I'll set Fred like <laughs> Rooney and Brad like it's not good enough all right like so kind of in like uh like a non-confrontational way, you know, which it's probably better just to address it. Like, Hey, what you're saying to me is not helping me right now. Like, I, I don't want to set you. And like, I'm overthinking every set. Like I need, you know, I know when I miss, like I know when I'm, so I wish I probably would have stepped, stepped up more, but you know, instead I just, I'll just set Fred. And I think then probably Rooney and Brad figured out I better be nicer to this guy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know if I'm quite answering your question, but yeah, I think uh, in, 
in hindsight, I think it would have been more helpful at times. I, I mean, I think there's like that balance of like, as a setter, like you're kind of serving the team and like trying to figure out how you can always, you know, do something better for them. But like, I don't know, at some point you got to stand up for yourself. For sure. I agree 100%. <laughs> you know it better than me. Up for yeah, yeah. No, I'd imagine, I mean, yeah, I think I evolved too. Like the next year I, I was, I think I felt more confident and I, I could, yeah, I just wouldn't put up with as much. And yeah, I think, and I'm sure, you know, now, as long as you've been setting, you, you're just clear on who you are and like what's important to you and you can stand up for it. At that point, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to do that. Yeah. There's just some guys, I mean, I mean, we've talked about him multiple times. Winder, I, I don't know where he gets it or how he got it, but like, I mean, Marv told me multiple times, I had to calm that guy down as a freshman. <laughs> like he came in yeah. blazing. I was like, man, to be yeah. 18 and go in and like take the reins. That takes balls. Yeah. Yeah. No, cool. I think, I think that's the first thing that jumped out to me about him. I got to watch that freshman, freshman year and, you know, probably watch through biased eyes. Cause like, I wanted to set like that was my position and he, and he took it. And I mean, I figured out pretty quickly that it, it made sense to have him set. Um, but the first thing that stood out wasn't like, it, it didn't feel like he was a, a really good setter at that point. Like for a freshman, he was good, but he wasn't, he wasn't really good, but he was a really good competitor. Like he was really, he, he was a good leader and it didn't feel like the moment was too big ever. Um, so it was like, yeah, he's not going to be lightning quick. You know, he's going to, he doesn't have a, a great sense of how to run an offense quite yet. And he's going to miss a little bit, uh, but like, he's going to compete hard and, and he's going to lead. So, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out from there. And then I think all the other stuff, I mean, by senior year, he, he had all, you know, he had all the intangibles. For sure. What year was the Lewis match? That was my first year. That was your first year. So NCAA Final Four. So you've told me before that that's one of the most disappointing losses you've ever had just because it meant so much to you. And you had all the – I mean, Pepperdine has high standards, but you probably had some expectations for yourself. Um, after that disappointing loss, what's that summer like and what's that next preseason like and how do you build? Yeah, it's still, it still stings. Yeah. yeah, I still feel it. Uh, yeah, I think – Pepperdine had had such a tough loss the year before. Like I said, they'd beaten Hawaii three times and then lost them in the final. And I think that group was hungry. This was Brad's senior year and they, they wanted some redemption. And, and we were number one all year that my first year at Pepperdine. And we went to the final four, uh, I think still number one and, and playing a school from the Midwest called Lewis. And at this point, the Midwest, you know, hadn't had the years they've had more recently. And we didn't know much about him and kind of just thought we'd walk through him and we were more getting ready for BYU. Uh, and that Lewis team played, played really well. And I mean, they, they ended up losing the, they vacated that title because they had a bunch of pros on that team. But yeah, it was a brutal loss. Like we were up 13, 13, 11 in the fifth and got stuck in row one. And um, I probably could have set better. And, and we, uh, oh. yeah, so we were, you know, we were, so, so there was a lot to chew on and a lot to think about. And I think it was, two tough, like two bitter pills for Pepperdine to swallow two years in a row. Um, so yeah, that, that off, I mean, that summer I had, you know, back then it was, you'd only watch through TV and you know, so my parents had taped it on ESPN and I think I'd put it in like almost every day when I was at home and I had a <laughs> back in my parents' house, I was on a bunk bed I was up on the top bunk and I had a dream that 
because this game was in the pyramid at Long Beach State, which is a yeah gym in the shape of a pyramid. And I'd had a dream that the pyramid was falling on me. And I actually kicked a, a, a hole through the roof. It was a, uh, the old like cottage cheese roof and woke up like in a sweat with like my foot in the, you know, in the attic. Uh, so obviously it, it uh, weighed heavy on me. Uh, I remember, yeah, just like watching it, like looking at what I could have done better and just being like so committed to being better the next season. And I mean, I was playing beach all summer and just playing lots of volleyball and just came in to that, that preseason on a mission. I remember like getting my roommate, like, all right, we're going to go, we're going to go for a run. Like we're going to go run and do push-ups to the beach. And, you know, it's not that it was going to help us be better at volleyball, but you know, rock, Rocky did it. So we were going to do it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I was, I was, really motivated to be better um that that match had a big effect on me this makes so much sense jackson said you guys were watching ucla long beach like two three years ago and they got stuck in row one in set five and he was like the first thing johnny mayer said was row one it'll get you (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh yeah i still have nightmares about it i mean i think row one's always tough but yeah i remember um i think i we had a couple of challenges there. We didn't, our, our right side had had a tough game and we had subbed in a new right side in, in row one. So I didn't feel comfortable setting him on the left. And uh, Andy Hine was in the middle as a freshman. And I think we were a little out of system. I couldn't quite set him. So I'd set Rooney, I think two or three and probably a little tight. And they had made a couple of digs and we call a timeout. And I think Chip tried to talk me into running an X2 with Rooney and to set Fred a D. And we hadn't done it once that whole year. And I didn't do it. I just, I like, I'm just setting Rooney and I set him. I think he got blocked and, um but yeah i remember like chip kind of after like could have run a d there like (laughs) like like, i don't know so yeah i just had all those like thoughts running around you know what i could have done what i should have done but yeah that was brutal so do you feel like there was a significant aside from rooney being a senior and having experience at this point and like going through well all of you guys going through these ups and downs and like these this adversity as a team did, what did you feel like was the changing points your senior year that took you over the edge to become national champions? Yeah, it's if always it's hard to say. Like that good, then I <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's like luck, and you know, there's all like random circumstance. Like I'd, I'd imagine, I think Bo's team was probably better than our team that won the championship, and even the team my first year was a little bit more talented. So there, there's, you know, all sorts of random factors. But, I mean, that team, we, um, yeah, I think James Cobb, Rooney, and I had been through uh, a lot. And I think Rooney was significantly better than anybody in the country. I think he made something like like six errors, six hitting errors on the year. And he got set every ball. You know, he just he hit the court a lot. Um, and Winder came in as a really good freshman. I think Andy Hine was um, starting to uh, really blossom and, um we won a bunch of sets in the in the fifth like we i think we were like eight no in five setters so maybe some of that like senior you know experience uh, paid off but i don't know who knows it's probably just we got some lucky <laughs> that's a lot of it yeah people for sure want, people don't want to admit it but like injuries sickness yep. matchup yep. like that's all part of it if you're gonna win yeah yeah, no, for sure. And who else is in the league that year? And I mean, there's all, there's so many factors. Um, but, but I, we were, we were consistent. We were steady. We, I think we got along pretty well. We, 
and we really only had, I think <laughs> that was the funny thing about, I don't know if it stayed that way, but at, at Pepperdine, especially then we had like kind of seven guys who could, who could play. And then our, our second team, you know, we weren't, we wouldn't have beat the Pierce team for sure. We wouldn't have beat too many teams. Uh, I think that year we had, cause James Winder and I were on the court. So the second team was uh, Rick McLaughlin was setting it. Like we didn't have a backup setter. Um, and uh, I, I think we like, like Craig Buck had to come in and play sometimes. And I mean, he was like 45, 50 at that point. Uh, you know, the, we were having to bring guys in to make practice even competitive. I remember Stork, Winder got hurt one time and Stork came in and set um, on, on the first team. Um, but yeah, I remember watching like hitting lines. You'd watch UCLA and the like, in between games, you know, it's like the second team guys and they're just thumping balls. And like our guys are like just hitting the tape and like, just, it just wasn't it was like, man, we're like, if, if one of us goes down, like, you know, it's, it's going to get tough. Uh, but we, yeah, we, so we stayed healthy and, and we just like, we played UCLA in that final and they had this team that just, that changed a lot. Like their lineup was always different. And so I don't know if they had that same cohesion, you know, going into a fifth set in a, in a title game, we were just the same seven guys who had, played every every point of every set so maybe that that helped out yeah I mean we were the same way my all four years I think yeah maybe we had a seventh man yeah but other than that it was like all right this is it we're going we're going guys yeah yeah and and, but good always good guys like we there was guys you wanted on the team and guys I mean I remember when we won, like I went to some of those guys first, the guys who um, weren't even traveling, but that were just kind of part of our group that celebrated with them. They're all a big part of it. I don't want to take away from what they did because we had good, like hardworking people who were committed to their role and to helping us all be great. So, I mean, that, I think that's, you know, good teams. Everyone knows the role and they do it as well as they can. And Marv's the best at uh, figuring out how to do that. For sure. He's a... Uh... We've had a couple talks about role clarity and how important it is as a coach. He was saying, I don't know if he's told you that story about Ricky Ludes. I don't think so. So he said, uh, before the Olympics. You got to do it in his voice, though. <laughs> he's like, hey, hey, before the Olympics, you know, Ricky Ludes comes in. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And uh, he said, yeah, Ricky Ludes and I are duking it out for like three, four hours. Because Ricky Ludes thinks like he's better than Stork. He's like, I'm better. You should take me. I should be starting. And Marv's like, look, you're the best second setter in the world. I don't know what you want from me. We're winning a lot with Stork. We've lost like matches in the last three years. And Ludy said, all right, then I'm out. And he was like, it was, it killed me because he's obviously a great talent. But I was like, all right, if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. But that's like that's what's important to me was that we know that Stork is the guy. Yeah, yeah, and I think it can be hard as a coach to be that honest. Like you kind of want to make everyone feel good, good, and maybe fluff them up. But Marv's really good about being direct. But like like that story, like he was direct, but he also said he was the second best setter in the world. Like you know, he wasn't like you know throwing him under the bus. So I think there's also a way to be direct in a, in a kind way. And that's where Marv's really good. So after your senior year, uh, you're playing beach throughout college, like on the weekends during the summers and all that. But when did you actually decide to 
you wanted to pursue beach as a career? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I probably, even now, it never felt, it was just like, I just liked doing it. So I kept doing it. I don't know if career is the right word. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, I mean, as soon as indoor season was done at Pep, I was on the sand. Um, 2003, so I guess after my, my second year or my first year at Pep, I think I qualified for an AVP event and I think Rooney and I would play a couple and qualify. And um, I was starting to like really, really love it and see that that's what I wanted to try to pursue. Um, so yeah, it just kind of, it was happening throughout college. Like I was, I was playing CBVAs and playing and really seeing the impact it made on my indoor game. I felt better each year coming back to indoor. I felt stronger. I felt uh, more mobile. I felt like my ball control is better. And I really think, I mean, that's the only reason I was able to play probably even be in the lineup my senior year is because I had played a lot of beach. Um, I, you know, my limited volleyball experience, I'd only set, I'd never been in serve receive indoors. I'd never played any position, but, but setter. Um, but because of all those beach reps, I think I was like, yeah, just, I'll, I don't know, I'll try to hit an angle, like set me and we'll see what happens. Uh, usually if you set it fast enough, there's one block and that's kind of like beach. So, um, so yeah, I guess it was just all throughout. And, um, and then, yeah, kind of, I think some of those summers, first summers went good enough for me to keep doing it. And uh, the, the tour was in a pretty good place at that point. It was, uh, there was like 16 to 18 events and it just, yeah, it seemed like there was something there to keep going after. That's a cool gig that you guys have in California. You guys have that ability. It's like, yeah. you know, like, let's uh, play AVPs while we're you know, <laughs> 16, 17, 18. That's awesome. Like, what yeah. great exposure. Yeah. Yeah, you could uh, – I mean, I remember uh, at Pierce, we would we would go play in the summers, and, you know, you'd play on a court, and right next to us would be Dane Blanton and Jason Ring and Kevin Wong, and these guys who, like, you'd watch on TV were, you know, just the court next to you. And I could, you know, we'd mainly focus on what we were doing, but you could see pros, you know, on the same, same courts on the same beaches and could see the way they approach practice. And so, yeah, I had that exposure and, and then, yeah, like going to the Manhattan beach open and the Hermosa tournaments and it just gave like a kind of that, that dream that you could chase. You could just like, wow, this would be really cool to do. Not that I felt like it was a reality, but I, I guess it just gave me a taste of it, of what was possible. Well, it had to have been a pretty fun ride because you got to travel the world. You got to compete for a long time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think initially I I was just like, you know, I think I gave myself like a five year. It's like I'll give myself five years and then if I'm not still improving or going anywhere, then I'll, you know, get a real job. And uh, I don't know, at some point that five years, I guess, went by and I kept going. Um, but yeah, I think looking back on it, I, I definitely – surpassed any expectations I had and yeah I got to play I mean yeah in the Middle East and in China and Brazil and all over Europe and um got to play with all sorts of different partners and um yeah I got to be pushed and challenged and play through stress and play in a you know in a hailstorm and you know in 110 degree weather and you know just all sorts of different experiences uh, so yeah, I'm so thankful for what I got to do. How many? And, sorry, Jackson, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead, Matt. How many years did it take for you to become a main draw team? 
Yeah, so that, that first summer, I think 2005, where we had won, uh, Rooney and I played, and I, I think I had already had some, like, some points. So I, I, I don't think I was quite main draw, but, like, I think Rooney and I, after about four tournaments, we were in the main draw. And I remember him, we were actually working Marv's camp, He's like, hey, I just did the points and we're in the main draw. I'm like, what? So we were, I remember we were just like so stoked that we didn't have to play the qualifier. And so, yeah, I think it was that first summer we were main draw. And then, of course, Rooney dropped me for a guy named Brian Lewis, uh, who was kind of a legend of the game. So I think then I dropped back down to the qualifier and kind of finished that summer where I was like right on the brink. And I went into that next summer where I had enough points to be in the main draw and there were some options I had to play with. There were some players who who were good players, but I didn't think they were great players. And I um, decided to play, I kind of talked to Brad Keenan. I thought Brad would be a really good beach player. And at that point he, he had quit volleyball um, and he had been, he was an accountant and he was, he was overweight and out of shape. And, but I just knew like he had indoors, like he had really good hands. He had a big jump, so he could block the ball, which are all things you want on the beach. So I talked him into, and, and I think he just, he wasn't loving, you know, working in the real world. So kind of talked him into it and he had zero points. So it took me from like being in the main draw to playing in qualifiers, but I knew he'd be worth the, the risk. And I was young enough that it was, it was a good risk to take. So that summer we, the first couple, we didn't qualify. And I remember being so frustrated because I was, you know, I'm a main draw player. Um, and I, you know, I had thoughts of like, um, changing partners but we stuck it out and ended up having a really good summer and um, obviously he had a good beach career as well so yeah that was always a hard part of it to you play the points game and play with uh, maybe a inferior player or take a risk on like the right player and kind of work together and build the team together um, so you said you never or you rarely rarely felt like you were the best player on your team um but what was it like being named the a the MVP of the AVP? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a big <laughs> surprise. Yeah. I remember it because I, I, I would never like even go to the banquets. They do those banquets every year. And like, I don't, what am I going to do there? Uh, but I remember they, they had, um, I think the CEO, had, he's like, hey, make sure you're there. And I kind of thought, okay, so I, maybe I had a good year that year. We had won a number of tournaments and we had done well. And I thought maybe I'd get like best defensive player. So I think I had thought for like, cause they have you do a speech, you know, like Todd Rogers goes up there, Kerry Walsh or Misty and you watch them give a speech and like, God, I never have to do that. Uh, but yeah, so I like kind of thought about what I would say is, you know, if I get best defensive player and, and I remember, um, so I ended up getting in, I do, you know, a little speech like, Oh, thankfully I'm done. And I think I was talking with like Jake Gibb before. I was like, I think you're, I was like, Jake, you got your speech ready. I think you're going to be MVP. He's like, Oh no, it's going to be Phil or I don't know. And then I remember Mark Sherman uh, for the men's AVP started to announce it. He's like, and I've known this guy for a long time. And I'm like, I've known Mark for a while. And uh, he uh, was my coach. And I was like, wait, I coached Mark. So he's going to, he's, and then he says, mine. And I was like, what, wait, what? <laughs> so yeah, I was really just shocked and, I think I went up, I think went up there just like deer in headlights. And um, I remember like, what am I supposed to say? And like April Ross is telling me like, thank your wife. Like, thank, you know, yeah, it was just like, so I was just, just all uh, in shock. But yeah, that, that was pretty cool to just be recognized. The players vote on it. And it was cool that I was recognized for that. And a surprise. When did you, 
Was it an, I mean, obviously it's an active choice, but was it an active choice to start playing internationally or is it something that was more forced upon you because you had gotten into such a good position that people <laughs> were like, we need you here? Or were you like, I want to do this? Yeah, I think um, right now when players come to the beach game, that's like the first dream. Partially, um, I think the FIVB uh, beach tour has, has grown and then partially the AVP has shrunk. Yeah. So that's kind of where the top players go. When I first came to the AVP, it was, the AVP was, you know, the, like I said, there's 18 events and I didn't really know that much about the FIVB. Like it was like, I want to do like watching, you know, Eric from Milan or watching Todd Rogers. Like, that's what I want to do. Like I want to be in the Manhattan beach final and I want to play that. So that was really my dream. And then, um, yeah, kind of as I went through it, you started to realize, oh, the top players, they go over to Europe and they play some of those events. And if I want to get a really good blocker, I've probably got to say, I want to do that too. So I think I just started to realize that if I wanted to keep accelerating, keep moving up, that I'd have to at least try to tell blockers that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> and then as you, um, yeah, as you get to that point and then, and then, yeah, I mean, I think as that tour grew and you just started to see those events, like, oh, it'd be really cool to go to Klagenfurt or to go to, you know, Berlin or go to Stad or, or wherever. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I think it just, it just kind of happened naturally, but that wasn't my initial like dream. That's not what I saw. Like that's, that wasn't the, the big goal, but it changed. When did an Olympics come into that pretty soon after of like, I, that's, that's now the end game or did that ever occur? Yeah. Um, it definitely like, it was a thought. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to even think back. I mean, in, in 2016, like we were, we were in the mix, uh, me and Ryan Doherty, I think, you know, it's a two year process. So it starts in 2015. Um, and even Brad and I, I think had a, a little look at it in 2012. Um, but I, so to, to play in the Olympics, you really have to uh, commit to the FIVB and you have to make a lot of irrational choices. You have to decide to go to China instead of um, Manhattan Beach, you know? So, so that's what ends up happening, right? There's, okay, there's a tournament in Manhattan Beach where I can, you know, sleep in my bed and go play and make a good amount of money. Or I can fly to China and I can play another American team, not even in the tournament, they call it a country quota. So I have to play another American team to get into the qualifier and I have to pay for that flight in the hotel. And, and uh, there's a 50% chance I'll lose the country quota and then a 50% chance I'll lose in the qualifier. And so you kind of have to make these choices along the way. And I, I generally erred towards the AVP. Um, and partially because, partially because I, yeah, wasn't, I was probably, it wasn't a home run for me to go like commit to the FIVB because I wasn't, I was like, I was at that level, but I was at like the bottom part of that level. Like, obviously if I was like playing with Phil and I was as good as Todd, like, oh yeah, let's go. Like we're, you know, we're going to put ourselves out there. But I, um, so I think I just made some calculated choices and maybe I could have like, you know, given myself more opportunities and maybe I would have lost all those country quotas and I wouldn't have given myself, but it's hard to know, but yeah. I, I definitely overall erred towards um, playing AVPs and, and just playing in tournaments. 
so yeah, that's kind of the situation you have to be put in a little bit. Um, and yeah, it de I definitely didn't give myself the best chance to make the Olympics. I think um, in two, the 2016, I think we ended up finishing third and, and top two, the top two make it, but we, you know, we were third by, there was a big gap. So um, yeah. And this whole time, or I think your whole beach career, you're also coaching on the side, which most beach volleyball players have jobs on the side. So you're not very unique to that, but it's tough. But as you're coaching and as you're playing, when did you decide you wanted to be a coach after you were done playing? Yeah, I think I knew all along. Uh, I mean, I think I was very lucky to find a job that I really like, I really enjoyed and it was a consistent paycheck where some beach players have to maybe wait tables or do stuff they don't, or they're not necessarily building a career. Um, so I, I think I knew that that's always what I'd, I'd want to do. And um, that there was really lucky to be at, you know, I was with you at, at Santa Monica college and I knew that I was just going to, I was going to learn how to coach and I was going to build my resume and I'd set up my career long-term. So, yeah. And I always felt like it helped. I mean, there was negatives, like it, it definitely there's sacrifices. Um, Cause I'd, have to miss a tournament here or there or you know just when you want to be elite like you want to put every ounce into to lifting and and you know rehab and, and, and competing and, and when you're coaching and on your feet and doing stuff like that it takes away from it but there was lots of benefits too like I feel like I you know um, understood the game at a higher level especially as a beach player you really have to write your own practice a lot you don't always have a coach so I was more mindful about um, what was important in practice um, and then I think vice versa, like playing, competing, you know, you, you understand how hard it is and <laughs> how hard it is to get better. So then as a coach, I think I was able to bring just a little more empathy and, uh, yeah, hopefully kind of be there for the players more. So there's definitely benefit doing both, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, I loved coaching. I always just felt like it was, it was like, this is the second best job in the world. Like playing's the best and, <laughs> and, and then coaching's the second best and, Eventually, I think as it got to the end of my career, I think it, they kind of flip-flop, like coaching is the best job in the world and playing second best. Uh, but yeah, I always, I always loved it, it's, and I still do. That culture yeah. that you guys established at SMC was so much fun to be a part of. <laughs> I was there for maybe three weeks, and I was like, I That's love right. this gym. <laughs> this so That's right. Fun. Yeah. Yeah, those are good guys. Man, the junior college men's game, and I, I, don't, I don't know the women's as well, but just some like special breed of, uh, of people. It's, yeah. Just, and we had some, some really good guys and something I really tried to do. And I think Pierce did is we just kept a lot of people. Like I never, we never made cuts and it was more like if you're able to kind of show up at 6am and, and shag balls or work hard, then you get to hang around. And so you just end up getting people who really love it and are really, um, really committed to it. And yeah, it's, that's a fun, that's just a fun level. Jackson's was a part of it for a long time too. Uh, but yeah, I, I have a definitely a, a special place in my heart for JC volleyball. It was, you guys were just really fair, which is hard to find <laughs> in gyms. Again, I know that sounds elementary. Like, oh, they were fair, you know, but <laughs> it's just reality. Like you guys gave everybody a fair shake, even when I was in there and you guys were mm. prepping to get into playoffs. And then you were in playoffs, and I just kept thinking to myself, each individual on this team still has a chance because John might give you a chance still, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And that's also really hard to find 
simultaneously. And I thought that was great. And just like, even if they were for both of you guys, even if they were the third Libero, like you were still working with them. And I was like, they mm. care. They're fair and they care. This is great. Yeah. No, it's, well, that's... It's no wonder that the guys bought in. Mm. Yeah. It's awesome for you to say that. Um, yeah. I remember watching uh, Tom Black run his LMU team, his indoor team. Cause I don't think I was always like that. And I, I still feel like I could be better at being more fair, but I remember watching him. I was like, he's giving all this feedback to like his third string opposite. Why is he, you know, why is he doing that? Why is he wasting his time there? But um, yeah, I think he cared about every person on his team and he wanted to help every, you know, if everyone feels like they're growing and, and improving and, and that their coach cares about them, then yeah, it's like that whole thing. Like if we're all rowing the boat the same direction, like we're a way better team and the coach can play such a big role in that. And um, yeah, it, it doesn't take that much time to show that you care. And it, but uh, it, it does take some thought and some preparation on how you can, you know, do it. Cause it's easy to just invest in like, oh, I've got to invest all my time and, you know, and the starters and the people who will play, but it, yeah, just a little more uh, attention and, and time for everyone goes a long way. I think that's where I balanced you out really well was I can spend some time with some guys that are never going to see the court and yeah. give them some feedback and, kind of build a relationship with them so you can kind of focus on maybe the four outsides who might start or something like that. Yeah, no, that's big is the staff. Um, yeah, I think having, having a, uh, a great assistant is, is important and having you is huge. That was our best years when you were with us. Um, but I remember, you know, I always go back to Marv, but Marv, uh, I feel like he knew some of the, the guys who would flip the scoreboard and he knew more about like them than sometimes some of the starters. Like he, yeah. he, he just, uh, he'd always have like, I think with everybody, like he has his like one kind of uh, go-to kind of conversation starter, like, you know, and just someone who is not just like, uh, Hey, how's it going? But it's like, he remembers something about your family or I don't know, some inside joke you guys have, like he just is good about finding that with everyone. And, and I think, yeah, like I said, he, he I mean, he, I remember him, it's like, why is he spending so much time with that guy? Like, uh, uh, just because he cares about people and he cares about the team. Yeah. That man is remarkable. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's remarkable how many things he remembers. Yeah. You're right. He has a quirk with everybody. Yeah, a quirk's a good word. Yeah. Yeah. Every, everybody that walks through that gym, he remembers their middle name or whatever. Yeah. You know, something. or a good a good story you know yeah so, some, something something he can like you know maybe give you a hard time about or i don't know something that'll make you laugh yeah what's your uh give us a good marv story one of your favorite ones on or off the court doesn't matter there's quite a few uh i mean one just because we were talking about it earlier when we lost in that uh that tough semifinal to lewis and I felt like I'd yeah, blown it. Like I didn't set right or set the right person or set too tight or whatever. I remember sitting in the locker room, just like, I just lost Pepperdine and, you know, championship and, and yeah, he just came in and uh, I think I just remember him just like sitting next to me and saying how proud he was of me of the year I had had and kind of just took me from the basement to, uh, to just probably back to what I became as like super motivated that next summer. Like, all right, I'm going to go get after it. And, um so yeah that was a big one I mean there's a bunch of them like 
stuff she'd give me a hard time about. Um, I mean, still will joke about, I think I'm the only player who came out of Pepperdine making money off the per diem. Uh, they'd give us, you know, like seven bucks or something for lunch. And yeah, I know he brings that up. He brought that up to us. Did he? Yeah. I know. Leo Granada would try to do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was raised by, uh, you know, two, two teachers and we, we rarely ate out. And I, as a kid, I really, so like, okay, we're going to McDonald's. All right. I can get the two 99 cent burgers. I got 14 cents here for the tax. I can pocket five bucks and you know, here we go. Uh, so yeah, he'd give me a hard time about that. Uh, but yeah, there's all sorts of that, you know, stuff like that. He'd, I think one time my little brother who Marv was just amazing too. He would have my, my brother's 12 years younger than me. So he was, I don't know, you know, like nine years old when I was playing at Pepperdine, he would come into the locker room and do the waves call. And he, he really made him a part of our team. And I think one time Marv's like, Hey, I think we were up at Stanford actually. And, uh, you know, Hey, why don't you come on the bus and go back to the hotel with us? So my little brother, Joseph comes with us. And uh, so I think I was supposed to like kind of keep an eye on him and we go to check into the hotel and all of a sudden, I think me and Marvin was like, hey, where's my brother? Like, I, I lost him. I guess he had, like, gone with, I don't know, probably, like, James Cobb probably took him somewhere. Um, and still, so Marv gives me a hard time about uh, losing losing my brother. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I don't know. Like, how does he remember that stuff? And, you, you know, he'll bring it up. And, yeah, there's all sorts of that stuff. That's cool. What's your favorite Marv story of in-match? Uh... He doesn't say a lot to setters. He Usually he'll tell you one thing where you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, he didn't talk to me that much as a setter. Um, I remember in our, in our national championship match, uh, I think we were, we were going into the fifth, maybe going into the fourth. I can't remember which one, but we had been a little shaky in serve-receive. So he, uh, he called over, you know, it's obviously a high pressure match and um, we were at Poly Pavilion and it was, you know, packed house and he calls us over, me, James and Rooney who were in service receive. He's like, Hey, I can't pass gas, but I think if, uh, see, cracks of jokes, but if, uh, if we pass the ball a little bit, we're going to be okay. <laughs> I don't know why that's, you know, kind of like lighten the mood, like, Hey, passing is hard, but like maybe if we, uh, Kind of focus on it it'll it'll make a difference um so yeah i don't i mean i don't remember many like technical like hey you gotta put your left hand here when you block um i mean he, he was always good about blocking stuff uh, and he'd be all you know i guess he'd be all over hey you gotta be head up on that guy um but yeah i think he he's really good about letting you be free and letting you compete he's not going to over coach i think anytime i think that's one of his big strengths he knows so much like he could he could he could break down the game at a really high level um but he's not gonna you know vomit it on you do you feel like you're the same way as a coach or do you lean more towards the tactical and skills of the game we've talked about this with aaron of like the art versus the yeah. science which way yeah. do you lead and i'd be curious if you're the same as a player and as a coach yeah, I mean, I think I've evolved. Uh, I'd like to believe, I mean, I think that hopefully this, the science guides what I do. And then of course you've got to have, uh, you know, some opinion and some art in there. I think um, I've, I've kind of at like a coaching crossroads right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, 
I was, I think I went through like different waves. So I think initially I was pretty hands off and then kind of getting into like GMS stuff and getting into like Tom Black, uh, the way he coaches, I, I was pretty hands on. And now as I've kind of gotten into this, like, uh, ecological approach, this, um, constraints led approach, uh, I've gotten a really hands off. Um, so I don't know. I'm just a mess. Who knows? I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, actually, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I text Aaron to uh, see if he had any questions for you. And I've listened to a couple of your later podcasts. Yeah. Um, yeah, just give me a brief. Oh boy. I don't, yeah, I don't listening to, yeah. Listening to your Crider podcast. I don't know if brief is a thing, but yeah. Yeah. Kind of where are you at on that cross, uh, coaching crossroads? It's all Casey Kreider's fault. Another wave. Yeah. <laughs> He's got me going down. Uh, don't, yeah, I mean, I'm sitting up at night just like, what am I doing? I don't know how to coach. Uh, a brief. Um, so let's see. Um, and, and, and one of the challenges of this approach is the language. Like you got to, there's a barrier there. So I think the traditional approach is that there is a, a perfect way or there's like an optimal way to move and there's an end point. And the coach has the re, or has kind of the methods of how to do it. And he's going to tell you or she's going to tell you how to get there. Um, here's the steps. It's like a very linear, right? You're going to go from here to here to here to here. And that's where you want to get. And this more ecological approach is more um, uh, the coach is the provider of the problem, not the solution. So in the other approach, the coach is like giving you the solutions. Here's how you do it. In the ecological approach, we're more providing a problem and there isn't necessarily there's a, it's more of a non-linear path like you want to you want to explore kind of all these different areas so you have different responses to the problems you face so the coach provides um, maybe some sort of challenge some sort of problem for you to try to solve and the idea is self-organization the player will you know self-organize and, and try to figure out the best way for them to solve the problem uh, versus me continually saying, you know, try this, do that. Uh, you did this, you should have done this. Um, so maybe a little bit more hands off. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Does that make any sense? It makes a ton of sense to me. It sounds a lot like guided discovery and kind of with a different shake on it. Mm. When you say like presenting the problem thing too. Yeah. So what was that? What'd you say? That's Mars big thing is this guided discovery that you guys speak of. Yeah, I'll teach you one day, Matt. <laughs> no, 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 that's all right. I play in Europe. Um, it's all guided discovery. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I think it can come off as like, oh, the coach is in the corner, and like, yeah, good luck. It, it's not that. It, it's um, it's very individual based. So it's like looking at each player, like what what is the the main problem, the main challenge, and how can I constrain that? Like, how can I um, maybe nudge them towards a different solution or take something, change something in the environment that would want them to explore it in a new way. And, and also kind of, um, you know, feed, feedback, it seems like one of the worst ways of, of feedback is instruction, like a coach saying it. So trying to more get the player to um, attune themselves to all the feedback around them, like the feedback of what did the block do against me there? Where did the defense play? Um, you know, what did that sound like? What, you know, kind of getting players to notice all the feedback that's actually going on and, and take that feedback into the next play. Um, I think that one of the bigger, another big thing is um, 
So you can learn learning uh, explicitly versus learning implicitly. So to learn something explicitly is when, you know, someone tells you, like, here's how you serve, you know, you, you take four steps, you toss it on after your second step, uh, you load your shoulder. So like learning explicitly, um, I think you can, you definitely can learn that way and probably can learn a little bit faster. Um, but generally then when you get maybe under stress or when a problem arises, you're going to go to more an internal solution. Like I'm going to, Oh, well, I learned how to, you know, I didn't toss on, I didn't toss on my shoulders. So like that's what I got to do on the next one versus no, I've got to try to hit it right there. So when you learn implicitly where maybe the coach doesn't tell you exactly how to do it, but gives you a challenge, like, um, for example, like maybe putting, you know, the, the rope um, from antenna to antenna, you've got to serve under the rope, you know, hit it really flat. So instead of telling you like how to do it, you've got to hit it this part of the ball and toss it here and load like this, just, you know, try to figure out how to hit it between the rope and the net. You learn implicitly by um, exploring it and trying new things. And you don't necessarily exactly know how you hit it flat, but you've, you've explored it and learned how to do it. So I think that's one of the, like, when you're put in stressful situations, um, you're not just turning to the coach, how do I do it? Or going to like a movement solution. You're, you know, like I've figured stuff out on my own. I know how to solve problems and I'm going to um, lean on that one. So I'm just, a, you know, just a little less fragile athlete. Yeah. I'm going all over the place. There's a lot. Yeah, no, there's a lot. no I, I follow that. And that, that kind of goes into the research that it was either you or Aaron brought up to me maybe last year of external uh, triggers are better than internal triggers. Like you're saying, hit that spot instead of put my pinky toe facing that way or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the most, um, the most studied area of motor learning is that an external focus of attention is far superior and coaches just love in, internal focuses. Coaches are the king. I mean, I, I'm guilty of it. And it's really hard to coach, like only foc focusing on external. But um, I mean, I was actually, we, we interviewed a, a guy, uh, a researcher, a professor, and he's like, I tried for three or four years to prove that internal focuses were, were more beneficial. Like, we, you know, I believed it, like I was sold on it. And you tried like all these different experiments on how we could prove that an internal focus is more beneficial. It's just, it just isn't. And it's been tried for 20 years. And so having an external focus is you're going to be more accurate. Um, I mean, it makes sense. Like, obviously, like if I was trying to, if I was walking and thinking about my heel and told, you know, someone told me, no, think about your like left toe and then, you know, put your balance on your middle of your foot. Like you're just going to walk funny. Uh, but if, you know, if, um, try pushing the ground away or just, you know, walk to that corner, like you're going to walk pretty fluidly. So coaches are really good at getting us to really notice all these body parts and uh, overthink those sorts of things. Um, so I think that's the big challenge is getting people onto more external focuses. Yeah. When I read that research, I kind of cringed at myself of how guilty I was of that one. Yeah. But at least I, at least I figured it out a little bit. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's, it's a hard one and it, but I think that's the fun thing about coaching. Like if, if you're, you're coaching on your soapbox and like just constantly pointing out mistakes and you're staying the same, then I just don't think it comes across the same way. And you're, you're then, yeah, you're not growing. So it's, I think it's fun as a coach to be challenging yourself the same way you're challenging your players and, and trying to find like, you know, little things you can say more succinctly or more effectively. And the science is there to, to guide us. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's probably moments where, you've got to point out like 
something internal like a body part but then how quickly can you okay so that we've got that established like here's maybe uh you know the foot you want to start with but then like how quickly then can you move on to maybe an, an analogy or something external so i think there's a way to do it you know and that's reasonable you don't have to be like a a, a monk about this stuff like you know this is right. very interesting stuff. <laughs> no, this is all stuff that you balance as a player as well, right? Like, yeah, especially as a setter, everybody doesn't set the same way. Everybody doesn't move the same way. Everybody's bodily functions are not the same, right? Your movements aren't the same. So then it's like, there's fundamentals for sure. And I don't think you could look at any sport. And I don't think fundamentals have changed in the last x amount of years or whatever right so those stay the same but the personality in which you bring behind each one of those fundamentals is completely individual and there's some people that like they're just great at hitting wrist away you don't have to teach them that they mm-hmm. understand that concept right but it's like you're saying and i've talked to marv about this said there's three steps in a player's career it's like motor learning process right it's like just dial in fundamentals And the second one is coach player relationship and identifying like, this is what you need to do in these scenarios, blah, 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 blah. And the third one is like fulfillment as a player and a coach. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, we're just going to ride this out and like enjoy this relationship together. Cause we've basically hit, like we've hit our peak. Now let's grow together. So I've thought about that a lot. Cause I asked him that when I played in Czech and he came out to Prague to visit and I asked him, and I was like, you know, I, I he's always got an answer, a definitive answer for something. <laughs> so I asked him that question, and he gave me that answer, and I was like, when do you know? You know, I was like, but when do you yeah. know when you're supposed to give the keys of the kingdom to some kid? And yeah. like, you just do. And if you're wrong, <laughs> you're wrong. But yeah. that's kind of how life goes. Yeah. Well, I think that to that point of – there's so many areas of coaching to try to better understand, you know, it's not just like understanding biomechanics or, or motor learning, but yeah, relationships and, um, you know, learning how to motivate people and there's, you know, understanding statistics. So I think you can always like just understand it more deeply. And then, yeah, like Marv, you got to go with your gut sometimes. Like that's just what I feel, you know, I've learned as much as I can and I've tried to get to know this person and this is what I've, you know, this is, what I know right now, so I've got to, I've got to go with it. We're not going to go halfway with it, even if I'm not totally sure if it's right. But yeah, I think to the point, I think what I, what you initially said, I, I did, I've tried to, I'm changing now is I would normally just come in without even seeing my players and say, okay, here's, here's how you're going to, here's the keys to passing. Here's the keys to setting. Here's how you're supposed to do it. And now I'm trying to first observe, you know, what are they doing? Is it serving? Like, is, are they able to set the ball accurately? Then, like, maybe my view of how you should set isn't, you know, maybe it's not right for this individual person. So this approach is much more individual based versus like there's this one, you know, one perfect way to do things. Uh, and and then yeah, if, if they are doing something that isn't beneficial, okay, how can I instead of telling them explicitly, how can I change something in the environment? How can I put some sort of constraint on it that will get them to explore a new way, a more optimal way that they can, they can do it. And that's where it can get pretty fun. And I mean, I'm just, I'm an infant with, with this approach, but I'm excited to, to kind of dive into it more and start to understand it more. Well, it's fun to grow with your athletes. Yeah. 
you know yeah i think that's kind of like what that's what you want is when they understand you better than you understand them (laughs) this is great like you guys have a total you have your own identity but you understand my philosophy but we're now growing together and adapting and evolving this philosophy as our own yeah yeah no i agree um i got one more for you john and it's from betsy flint oh wow your assistant coach yeah uh what's the most memorable learning experience you've had while you've been at lmu most memorable learning experience um betsy's always got hard questions (laughs) that's why she's on your team um i mean there was a lot from just observing tom and you know i think there's a lot that can be learned like i was saying there's a lot can be learned from research but i think a lot can be learned from observing a high level coach so i'd say just seeing him uh the way he approached coaching like uh like we were just talking about how like there's so many areas and i'm going to learn as much as i can about each area and get as good as i can at it and even then it's it's not enough i'm going to keep doing it so i think seeing that um and seeing him apply a lot of these like a lot of this stuff like you hear it or you read a paper um and then it's hard to know how to apply it so seeing him apply research mm-hmm. was really beneficial but i'd say for my own like personal growth um the most i learned is getting feedback from our athletes and the feedback being a lot that I didn't communicate well enough. Um, And I think what I tend to do is avoid confrontation too often. So what I've tried to do more, and it's still like really hard for me and really painful to do, but yeah, to just step into, you know, uncomfortable conversations and, uh, you know, yeah, take on uh, something that's uncomfortable to talk about sooner instead of like, oh, maybe if I don't talk about that in a week, it'll go away and I, I won't have to address it. And, but then it, you know, it just lingers and it's just, it's never. So I've tried to take those on quicker and more often. And what's helped me do it is um, just again, to see it as like a rep, all right? Like, okay, I, I really don't want to do this, but this is going to help me grow and be better at it. Um, even though it's uncomfortable. So, yeah, I guess that's. It's like, it's like your wind sprints for coaching. <laughs> yeah you feel like you're gonna throw up still yeah yeah like but yeah those are those are never fun um but they're always like uncomfortable situations it's like the stress leading into it is is 10 times worse than like once you're done with it it's like oh that wasn't that hard or like that like i feel way better like why did i you know why did i worry so much about that or why was i stressed about it like and even like you prolong it and then it's like three days of like oh i've got to, you know i've got to tell this girl something that I really don't want to say um, instead of like, let's just address it. Let's get to it. Let's, let's be direct and be honest. And being honest is usually more kind than, you know, dancing around stuff. I think the best coaches, managers, athletes I've been around with are not like, they're not volatile by any means, but they're certainly not afraid of confrontation. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're usually people that are not to say that you're not hyper competitive, but they're people that are like hyper competitive. And so they don't think twice. Yeah. They just just do it because it's the heat of battle. And it's like, I need this from you. 
Sorry yeah. if I went the wrong way. We can talk about that later. But right now, I need you to listen to me, you know, and you're playing like shit or like you're doing great, you know, and it could be like you're doing great or whatever. Because that's a form of confrontation that people don't want to say that's confrontation. People always assume confrontation is a negative statement yeah. from somebody. But telling people you're doing great too is a form of confrontation. And some people mm. don't even feel confident in themselves to say something like that. Like, hey, you're, doing, yeah. you're actually doing a good job. No, I think what you said, the, the confidence. I think as a coach, it takes the experience and the belief in yourself that that what you're going to say is actually true, to, at least true to you. So I think if you're, I don't know, there's lots of times we're like, well, I don't know if this is even right what I'm going to say. Like, you know, if you're doubting yourself going into an uncomfortable situation, uncomfortable conversation, then you're really not going to want to do it. So, yeah, I guess really um, if you, when you've had so many of those experiences and, and you can really trust, I guess, your gut, then you can, then you can really take on those conversations. So there's something, you know, there's something to doing it for whatever the, you know, the 10,000 hours or whatever it is. And the worst part is, is like, you never, you're always going to blow it. Yeah. You know, you're like, you're never going to get it right every single time. And yeah. you're never going to know every single experience. Like there's going to be one kid that walks out of there and it's like, she's just not happy or he's not happy and he's never going to think about you or she's never going to think about you in the same light. But at least you tried. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I think what I've found is like I did my best. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I've found doing that, making that effort is way better than just hoping it fades away. Like it, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Make, yeah. Like giving it that, like, all right, I've, you know, I've got to, you got to kind of, yeah, I guess you just, you got to go for it sometimes. And yeah, I think that's for me. I, that's the hard one for me is just to continue to push myself into, into that. Cause I, I erred towards like, yeah, if I put it off, yeah, it'll, it, it might disappear. Yeah. It brings, I, for me, it brings peace of mind. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that sucked. But usually both parties walk away from it relieved. Cause it, it's you. Do, you. Yeah. Other party's feeling the same kind of stress. Yeah. It's like, at least we both got it off our chest, whether we liked it or not, but it's, it is what it is now. Yeah. Do you do it with teammates now? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I played with one guy last year. I felt like every two weeks we'd butt heads, <laughs> you know? And like, yeah, I mean, there was a point where I was like, I don't care if you like my sets. That's not my problem. That's your problem. But at the end of the day, I'm your setter. So like, you're either going to have to commit to it or not. Like that's, that's your decision. Yeah. You know? How do you take it? Uh, he took it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he still had ups and downs, but yeah. I, yeah. But at least he knew where I stood. You're right. And I knew right. where he stood because he's right. like, you know, I just don't like you. And I was like, well, that's fine. Like, that's all right. But we're still yeah. on the same team. So when we're out there, can we just act like pros? Yeah. We did. That is one thing that we did. We were like, I wasn't mad. He was a good player. I was like, I'm going to set you. Yeah. Was, yeah, it can feel good to be heard, like to get the things that you're bottling up, even just getting it out yeah. can yeah. be relief. Yeah. Other pro, like when, you, when you're getting someone, you teach someone explicitly, like you can really see them improve right there. And that, that feels good as a coach. Yeah, for sure. I, I feel like that's the... 
Sure. But, it sounds like you yeah. guys are both drinking the same Kool-Aid over there. <laughs> yeah, what do you think? Where am I missing? Where am I off? No, no, no. I think it's all great. I think, uh, I think there is a fine line between giving – I'm sure you've noticed this as a parent and what I see as, like, people that are parents. There's a fine line between letting your kid go through everything and then giving them advice after – instead of giving them a little bit of forewarning yeah you know so it feels like this is kind of on the same edge of like right you got a kind of trial by error for you and then yeah but at the same time i was going to say it earlier when i was younger like 16 17 i got the opportunity to work with bill neville Mm. and uh because he lives up in seattle and i'm totally that way when I was growing up, it was like, you learn, it's like baptism by fire. You got to figure it out on the fly. There's like, nobody taught me how to pass. I just figured it out. Right. Right. But then he asked me, he was like, describe how you pass, you know, describe how you, because he calls it overhead passing. He says there's two forms of passing. Mm. It doesn't exist. And Mm. you know, how do you, (laughs) how do you do these things? And I couldn't describe it. And he was yeah. like, you got to start thinking about this stuff. Because when you're in situations with your attackers, you're going to have to start describing certain scenarios. And if you can't describe mm. the way you play, how are you supposed to describe scenarios to people mm. in the heat of the moment? And I was totally taken away. I was like, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely mm. right, you know? So that's why I was thinking, There's it, that's that fine line of, if they can't explain it, then do they really know it? Yeah. I think what happens though a lot is people explain it, but it's like tennis players forever thought they like, you know, hit over the ball. Like you explain what, but you don't actually explain what you do. Like, I don't think we actually. Yeah. So I think maybe there's value, but I, I think being able to explain something maybe more tactically, like, yeah, when I run a, you know, a three and a go, like it gets the right side, uh, you know, whatever. Like I could see that. Or like being able to explain, like, you know, after the ball comes out of my hands, like I, ret- I don't know, my right hand comes, I don't know, like really understanding that nuance. I don't know how far that gets. I think of it more as like a blocker. Say a guy's just killing a sharp angle. Yeah. Right. And then it's like, okay, drop your right hand. Now, yeah. if you don't know how to block, right, and you're just like, I just block. And it's like, drop my right hand. I never really thought about that. Yeah. That's where it gets. But even that, even that, I mean, drop your right hand is. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Totally taken a different way. Yeah. I mean, there has to be some kind of common language. Like, I've coached with John before, so if if we talk volleyball, there's a somewhat common language. Maybe we're not saying all the words the same. Whereas if I went into – maybe someone on the East coast into their gym, they're like, talk, they're using words I've never used before. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Walking into your guys' gym and then hearing you talk about the first drill and all the vernacular you used, I was like, okay, I'm in. I can yeah. with this guy. I know exactly, yeah. what he's saying, know exactly what he's trying to do here. I'm good. Yeah. But if I was to branch off into like another part of the volleyball tree, I don't know if it would be the same. Yeah. No, that's an important point. I think that goes into culture too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess it's like how, 
then the question is like, yeah, how, how deep do you want to go into that language? Like, or how, how much do we need to dissect it? You know, can it, yeah, I think that's where, and it, it's probably individual based too. Like we have some players who like, I mean, I could overload them with technical feedback and I wouldn't really phase them. You know, they'd like, they just keep competing. And then like some player, you give them like one internal focus and like, they're going to obsess about that for, you know, way too long. And it's going to distract from like, like it doesn't even look like you're trying to put the ball away. Like it looks like you're trying, you know, you're thinking only about your small right step. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's where it gets tricky. I think that, I don't know. Have you guys read the MVP machine? No. What's it about? Tell it's us. really good. Yeah. I'd recommend it. This, this kind of got me going on this approach a little bit uh, in a more like, I've read some of the textbooks, which are, you know, rough to get through, but like the, this is a story. It's like, it's the, um, like modern day money ball in baseball. Um, where I think for a long time, like, like baseball, they, they didn't really, it's just like you get to the majors and like managers just, you know, oversee the team. They don't, they don't try to get you to improve. And, and like the modern day money, the modern day, um, thing is like now it's all like skill acquisition like how can we get people to throw faster and you know hit home runs like that sort of stuff so like actually like developing players and for forever like coaches in baseball would tell hitters like you got to hit down on the ball or you've got to like um you've got to swing through the ball and i mean i guess the first thing is like the pitch comes from a higher point and it comes down and if you hit down like you have less time to hit it but that's like, that was like the tradition. Like that's what good fun, fundamentals were, were like to like hit that way. And just that point of like coaches have an idea and it's, it's wrong a lot and it's not even necessarily what players do. But then, you know, as analytics came in, they found like hitting the ball in the air is far superior. Like you hit like 200 percentage points higher. And so like coaches for you know decades were, and still in the majors, like all these coaches are saying the wrong thing. Um, but I, you actually want to hit the ball this way. And so, and then even like velocity, like the way velocity was taught, you know, it was all these like internal, like all, all these things you got to do. And um, the people who have really found, or have been able to get people to throw faster have not been like major league coaches, but these little um, kind of like science geeks who like, uh, there, there's a place called Driveline. I think it's actually up in Washington. Um, and they found, I mean, they had these like high speed cameras and, but the biggest thing was like weighted baseballs, like having, like, instead of telling someone exactly how to throw a ball, like to be able to throw a weighted baseball effectively, like you have to kind of self-organize and have good mechanics or you're going to get hurt. So they, you know, they just change, like constantly are changing the weight of the baseball and um, people, you know, you kind of see people like figure, you know, you adjust like your torque and uh, what all the stuff that matters in pitching and they're able to raise their velocity. So I don't know, it's all these like stories around things like that, where um, generally like coaches feedback has been either like, it hasn't made a difference or it's like been dead wrong. <laughs> like, you know, because it's, it's our eye. It's like what your coach told you um, versus like, yeah, you get these like high speed cameras, you get analytics. Um, and then, yeah, you put players in an environment that like pushes them to use proper fundament or proper technique, then they're going to start to figure it out on their own. For sure. At what point is that player ready for that though? 
that's the, like that's the next question too is it's like you can't do that with 12 year olds can you or do you like yeah that might be the, some of the art of coaching right there is identifying where they're at on right. that uh like that, on that, time that process that mar was saying is like when do you move on to the next point yeah yeah again it's like do you have to tell someone to like face the server or like pass with two arms do you have to explicitly say it or like maybe you have to wait another day but if like a 12 year old gets a chance to like learn oh yeah like passing with two arms is better like i learned that uh, <laughs> or facing the server instead of facing that way you know i'm able to like if as a coach can keep nudging all right no try to pass it here you're passing it there like if they can self-organize and figure it out on their own it just takes a lot of patience like i, I think it and, and as a coach, you got to keep like, all right, no, try passing it there. Try passing it here and let them try to like kind of nudge them to this external goal. Sure. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, and also I think we put kids on adult size fields and they're going to have like really like you're going to hit like this right on a net. So if we, we can, again, like change the environment, like lower the net, get a light ball, allow them to jump like the baby court in Hawaii. You watch those guys like they all have really good fundamentals. They, they played a lot on that court and, so I think there's there's a lot to like coming up with fun games, having an environment that rewards, you know, I don't know if good fundamentals is the right word, but yeah, that'd be my thought. But I don't know. I haven't done it enough. I think they, like uh, futsal. Yeah. Futsal for soccer. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, street they, street games. Or reps. Yeah. It's all the street games. Those kids that grew up playing street games, they, that's where a lot of the elite – Players are out. They played street games. I think – I don't know if you guys know who Vital Heinen is. He's the head coach for the men's Polish national team. And he's the head coach at Perugia, Wilfredo uh, Leon's team. And regardless of age, gender, whatever, I mean, these guys are the best team in the world potentially. He starts every day with, like, 30 minutes of games. Mm. Like, incredibly, incre like, incredibly creative games. And, like, I'm a huge proponent of that, too. I think games are, like, the greatest thing ever because it stimulates yeah. you. You have to work as a team. You're yeah. also working on your fundamentals, you know. And, like, you're becoming an athlete, which I also think is something that's not taught enough with younger generations is how to incorporate your whole body into sport because of the specialization that's happening. Yeah. Right now. yeah. Then, like, you come to Europe and everybody can do a somersault and they can all juggle a soccer ball and they can all throw, they can do everything. And then yeah. and like the guys that come over here, cause they're obviously good athletes. They figure it out fast and they can get it together that are Americans. But mm -hmm. both guys, like you walk into any gym, like you walk into Pepperdine's gym when you were there and you ask some guy to juggle a soccer ball. <laughs> it's like five guys. Yeah. Right? And that's not a difficult skill. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the game stuff is great. Like, I mean, obviously like the diversity, but uh, to like throw a, a new problem each day in a fun game. And we did, we did crazy stuff like this semester. I don't, I mean, I would have like probably laughed at what I was doing a couple of years ago, which is a good lesson. Like don't be too judgmental. Um, but yeah, I would like, and beach it's great you can just pick up the lines so we picked up the lines and moved them back five feet so one side was like basically a football field and one side was like short court i mean not quite short court it was like 15 feet long and the other side yeah then it was like all right 
game to 21. <laughs> <laughs> and not, you know, not saying much else. I did like an ace is worth two and a first ball side out is worth two. And I mean, I think with beach, it makes more sense in that you're going to have this strong like headwind at times and you're, like the court's going to feel that long. So it's like, a, it's a legitimate problem to try to figure out. And one side's going to feel small. But then, yeah, like, how can I, as a passer, like, I'm going to ball on me a lot faster. I have a lot of space to cover. And if they get an ace, they get two points. Like, you're going to have to get, instead of me saying, like, okay, look for cues, look at her shoulder. Like, you, you're going to figure out pretty fast, if you want to win this game, like, how to pick up on cues. Oh, yeah. Sure. And then as an attacker, like, you've got this small space to work in. It's like, you know, short court, you get all these there's benefits there, but yeah, I think there's just like fun ways to manipulate. Like we'd play on a low net sometimes I'd lower the net by six inches a foot. All of a you know, serves are getting over like, again, like they're having to read information way faster. Um, and then the physicality at the net, like you see blockers making moves, you're seeing more covers. Um, there's these like things that emerge, which again, like I would have been super judgmental about it, but, and I'm not like, it's like one game a day. We'll just start like, all right, who's going to take advantage of the environment like a low net and who's going to figure out how to how to yeah adapt and and win and yeah i think i don't know i think those games are like they're great teachers and they're good like good challenges each day and lots of players will go like this isn't fair the net's low like you're gonna go make excuses first but the more you do it it just starts to become like all right i'm a problem solver like and that's i feel like high level athletes they're constantly problem solving and the more coaches are just explicit, like this is how you do it, this is how you move, you take away opportunities to grow that skill of problem solving. So, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm on a, on a, I don't know. You're on a tear. I'm going crazy with it. Yeah, I mean, and like Pal is sick of me because, like, hey, what do you think of this? It's like you gotta talk to like, stop talking to me about this. <laughs> <laughs> like, can't you like call Tom or call someone else? But Zoom's been great. I've I've got to Zoom with so many, like, people to ask them. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a great argument. Well, not I mean, it's a great philosophical argument to have with yourself and other people because there's no right or wrong. Just yeah. Totally dependent on you and your kids. Yeah. You could have really, really sophisticated kids that are just creative, and they pick things up really, really fast. And then you could have another group of kids that's just they're not so. They're not so smart. They're not so good. Like the kids that complain, you know, those are yeah. the kids that aren't very creative. Like they're not great yeah. solvers. That's why they just start complaining. So you get yeah. them and then you're like, all right, I got to lower the bar a little bit for these kids, you know? And yeah. Also, yeah. You got to, you got to adapt it for sure. But then as the culture becomes like, yeah, we're, we don't like the people who are winning aren't making excuses about this challenge. Like they're trying to figure it out. I think people want to fit in. They start to, go with it and especially when you call them out like i was gonna ask you call them out oh yeah okay yeah i was just checking because that's also a big i mean that's part of confrontation so yeah yeah in practice it's not yeah it's more like we're pulling your scholarship like <laughs> i don't have that like that conversation sucks yeah yeah or like you know you're, yeah you're not gonna start because you're not good uh but yeah no that stuff in practice like yeah. Are you guys, you know, are you guys even trying to solve the problem? You know, you're talking about just stuff that's out of your control. Like what, what's in your control that you could do right now. And like the hard part is as a coach, like you kind of, I feel like I'll, at least to me, I see an answer and to not give it to them. Like, 
we did, we were doing, you know, we used to do like, you know, you got to be straight and simple with your platform. And uh, I think that still probably matters. But so we were trying, all right, let's put a towel, put a towel on their shoulders. So there's like a towel here. Yeah. All right. See if you can keep the towel on. And you see them like, I mean, my brother was trying it and like, he's standing straight up and like trying to pass the balls. Like, like, and to not say anything is hard. Like, all right, now it fell off. Like, all right, here comes the serve. And like, constant, you know, you see passers like do this stuff a lot. And like, all right, so you can keep the towel on. You get three points if you keep it on. Here comes like another <laughs> tough serve. And, um, but yeah, to like have the patience and give them the chances. And sometimes like giving them a model. All right, watch her. All right, she kept the towel on. You try. So instead of, again, like just finding fun ways to to improve your ability to put the ball where you want or do what you want. That's got me like, I'm just constantly trying to figure out what those are. It's a solid battle, my friend. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I don't know. Like I said, I'm like, I'm not even an infant with this stuff. You guys got to talk Casey Kreider. I mean, he's on it. I can't talk to Casey. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to see him. It's hard. Sometime it's hard. Yeah. Break. yeah. yeah. We, uh, we probably zoom once a week. I mean, he's in a, he, I mean, he's going to start his PhD. Like he's, he, yeah, he's, he's gone far, <laughs> but yeah, he, I mean, he's, uh, yeah, it doesn't, even, it feels like, um, almost like if like two like physicians were talking to each other, it's like a different language, right? It's like, it's not even, yeah, it's like at a level where it's like, it's hard to, for, I think it's hard for him to talk even with a coach. Um, yeah, but it's cool. He's like, he's not so knowledgeable. He Was he uh, there with you at all? Was it, or did you guys, you were a year after? My assistant coach. Marshall. Okay. Yeah. I had a okay. Group, he told me nothing. Really? Yeah, I mean like little, little to nothing. He actually was our second setter. Oh yeah. He was pretty new. He was probably pretty new to coaching then. Yes. He and JD were our assistants and both of them played on our second team, which made a pretty yeah. good team. Yeah. But he didn't say a lot. He just I remember talking to him actually at Marv's camp and he was like he's like, You're way better than I ever was and I didn't really know what to say at that time. I was kind of just like your thing, Matt. Yeah. I'll just help you whenever you feel like it, you know? Yeah. Which is the opposite of how I felt. Because having him, and then I had Winter the next year, I wanted to, like, outright beat them. Mm. You know? Because they were the guys before me. Yeah. So I wanted them. I wanted that respect as a player. And it was like, I was was just as good as you when you were here. You know, so like Winter and I play yeah. way more than Casey and I. Really? Yeah. Cause yeah. Like, I think it's when you're, like you guys are. Yeah. No, you guys are that close in age. Like you and Casey, it's hard when that's, I think it's hard to coach. And especially when you think like this player's better than me. Yeah. That's tough. I, I bet he would have been different. Yeah. Like five years later. Right. And Winter didn't have, I don't think Winter's ever had identity crisis. Yeah. He has, like, probably massed it pretty well. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, when he was there, he was like, it's my way or the highway. And I was yeah. like, well, it's my way or the highway. Like, I, <laughs> I was the first team All-American last year. Like, what the hell are you going to tell me, kind of? Yeah, yeah. So then trying to 
build that relationship was it was actually really fun and by the end I really I didn't want him to leave part of me wanted him to leave because I wanted to win a championship by myself but at the mm. same time I was like you made me me like I would yeah. love to have you around as just I yeah just, you know. and who'd you have after him uh Dave Hunt came back okay Dave Hunt kind of stepped in as that setting coach guide okay how'd you like dave dave is great they're so different all three of them were so different dave is very i've told jackson this winder taught me how to win and dave taught me how to run an offense (laughs) his winder is like why are you jump setting just set a high ball to josh he'll score (laughs) and dave was like we gotta run quick from the 10 foot line and we got to set the D the long way and open up our offense a little bit more, which is great. I'm appreciative for both of them. Cause now when I go back and coach setters, I understand both concepts hmm. as a setter. Now, obviously I still utilize both concepts of like some matches you got to play to win. And one guy's going to carry you to the promised land and other matches you can spread it. And every, yeah. you know, everybody eats and everybody's happy. But uh, yeah, yeah. Win, yeah, winner's pretty good at. He just had a very good understanding of like these guys need it more than anybody else, mm. you know. And I thought that was really unique. He was like, "You got to give Josh eleven balls a game, and you mm. give Parker the other eight, and whatever's left you can give to the middles, I guess. <laughs> middles and Kyle. And I yeah. Like, eh. Yeah. Yeah, because that's that, a one. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that adaptability is big to be able to do more than one thing. For sure. For sure. And it was it's really fun competing against him every day in practice because he practiced with us too. Did he? Yeah. He setter, you know, and uh, yeah. against him and seeing, seeing how many times he wanted to explode. And he was the assistant coach. So, like, part of him he was couldn't. better, but at the, other, the other part of him was like, I can't explode or I'm going to lose these kids. Yeah. See, Chip didn't, Chip didn't care about that. He would just break people. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know if you guys know Kevin Ensley. Uh, yeah, he would be like the – I mean, he, he Kevin quit his senior year. I think it was probably because of Chip. Basically, like, anytime the ball, like, if it was like a free – I think it seemed like almost any ball. Like, if Chip had to move a step, especially on a free ball, like, all right, you're out. And he'd put in, like, the guy who's, like, flipping score. We called him Scuba Steve or, like, Brad Carter. And, and like, Kevin, like – yeah, that just crushed him. But it was like he's like, yeah, doghouse rules. You're out. Scuba, get in. Scuba, Steve. <laughs> yeah, Chip was brutal. Yeah, I I think Marv told me because he was like, you got to be a little bit harder on your attackers. I was like, I'm trying, you know, like I'm trying to hold the standard. And he goes, Chip McCall. He said one of his nipples didn't kill a ball, and he just he's like, hey, is that ball good? And I said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And he punched him in the gut and said. <laughs> Um, you know, you better kill that ball. Yeah. Yeah, Chip's a different breed. That, guy, that guy's he's crazy. He is a very intense. I met him at camp, and I was like, you're just intense. Yeah. Yeah, he's mellowed out. But, yeah, he – him and Vern, those two guys.